Welcome to season three of Inside My Canoe Head, a podcast about individual emergency preparedness, where we talk about topical issues of the day. We interview people who are dealing with it on a regular basis. We ask the tough, difficult, and controversial questions. Sit back, relax. Let's get to it. All right. We want to start off today by saying thank you to all of our uh, listeners out there. Today, we reached this morning our 22nd country. I want to thank whoever it is in Morocco who has downloaded this podcast. I also found out that Inside My Canoe Head is number 20 in Kenya and number 130 in the United Arab Emirates in the category of education. So we have a worldwide reach, which is why today's topic is so exceptionally important. We are going to discuss vulnerable people, vulnerable populations, and the world of preparedness. So grab your favorite beverage, sit back, let's get at her. So I have to start off today by saying, listen, I admit, vulnerable populations have never really been a center focus of what I do. Um, When I started this research journey four years ago in my PhD and I started to look at the preparedness population and why people are not adhering to the preparedness message that is sent out by all levels of government and I started to look at a a multitude of things you when you read the literature you understand that there you know vulnerable populations have barriers blah 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 okay a lot of researchers believe it or not will dismiss that as that's just a section or a segment of the population. And this happens a lot in academic theorems and academic bodies of work where you get a certain segregation of view. And we've talked about theoretical lens here before, but you'll get a group of people who are exceptionally strong advocates for a very fractional part of the population. So, for example, I have a friend on LinkedIn. I've talked to him before, a fantastic human being. And he has MS, so he is an advocate for people with MS in the emergency management field. But that is such a tiny segment of the population. When you look at large-scale issues related to emergency preparedness, it's almost a nominal statistical event, which means it's really irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. Now, I don't mean irrelevant from a position of arrogance. I mean irrelevant when you're dealing with the lack of level of preparedness in 35 million Canadians, there are people looking at people with MS and their struggles, but writ large, the body of work doesn't. So you'll have a whole bunch of people who are in these little slivers and they're experts in their little slivers, but in large, you don't have a lot of people looking at vulnerable populations. And and so this brings up, how do we define a vulnerable population? I think it's important to do that before any conversation. So Vulnerable is actually very relative and it's very subjective. It's hard to find an objective definition of vulnerable because you as an individual may not see yourself as vulnerable within the population because you're getting by, but you're getting by is a pretty significant struggle and somebody who's not in your condition may look at it and say, hey, listen, this individual is exceptionally vulnerable. Look at all of these shortcomings they have and their ability to meet you know, animalistic basic needs or some of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So it's all about the lens. But so I don't like to define vulnerable. What I like to define is the opposite, which is resilient. So if you think a resilient individual and a vulnerable individual are on opposite ends of a spectrum, it's like a scale of justice, right? 
if the, the more vulnerable you become, the less resilient you become. And you can see that scale move back and forth. Resilience in academic discourse has over 30 definitions. It's a horrible word to use in, in disaster and emergency management because almost everybody starts off their academic article with, for the purposes of this examination, we will define resilience as. And, and I know from their idea that they're trying to help out, but in fact, what they're doing is they're just muddying the waters more. But res resilient has a definition in science, which is the ability of a body to return to a state of rest after, after an external shock. So if you knock something off, a podium how long does it take to get back onto the podium that type of thing so your ability to bounce back to your previous state is a measure of resilience the colliery to that is then your measure of vulnerability i hope that makes sense so today we're going to look at two types of vulnerable people we're going to look at the obvious upfront people you can see and the less known or i call them the well-hidden vulnerabilities and the first of the obvious is those with socioeconomic issues. So the people at the lower end of the economic strata are people who have uh, multiple conditions, multiple factors, uh, people who may have physical limitations. So they have a physical injury that presents a barrier to them achieving a high level of work outcome or achieving an education. Um, there may be individuals who have such a low income that they struggle to meet with the basic animalistic requirements. So you have a group of people that live at the margins of the majority of society. And these individuals are focused almost solely on the day-to-day -day struggle of life. So these individuals through a physical limitation or an economic limitation, through a cultural limitation, through a race limitation, through some exogenous force are in a position where they're looking at life as a daily struggle day in and day out. And some days are great and some days are not. Now these individuals are not necessarily weak by any measure of the definition. These individuals are not less valuable to society in any way, but these individuals are in a position. Now what happens a lot in society is individuals will judge that, in, that person because of the position they're in. And we need to do nothing more than look at how people treat a homeless individual sitting on the street corner with a cup. Now, we're not talking aggressive panhandlers because they deserve to be popped in the mouth, but people who are sitting and they're just holding a cup in a downtown and you look at how people react to them. Some people will pretend like they're not there, but visually it's almost impossible to not see the fact that they're there. Some people will portray obvious faces of disgust. You know, when somebody says, you know, can I, um, can you spare some change? And somebody responds, well, if you can say can spare some change, then you can say, would you like fries with that? So in other words, you're lazy and you're not working. Uh, so I'm not going to give you any free money. Go out, get a damn job. Or other ways that people react to people who are in a physically demonstrable sign of stress or less on the socioeconomic status. When you watch people, how they respond to that. And it's a great 
non-scientific test to do when you want to understand a lot of the human interrelationships is you watch people how they react when they're put in positions where they are forced to interact with somebody of a low socioeconomic or obvious struggled but what my research has shown out there is that corollary to that there is and this is something that I learned through this research journey and this is the amazing part about when you open your eyes to research and when you dive into what the world looks like and you know it's the discussion between normative and positive worlds not the world that you want to exist or that you hope to exist or that you expect to exist but the actual world around you that does exist and so when you interact with people who have significant visible vulnerabilities and then you do research into that area, I came across some fantastically unknown organizations that work tirelessly through the pandemic to help our most vulnerable within society. From the food bank to the organization that I interviewed for my research that just owns a simple house in a downtown core of an Ontario city and they offer free showers and a sandwich. No questions asked. They don't ask your name. They don't want to know anything about you. They simply offer you a safe place to sit down, a safe place to grab a shower, a safe place to do some laundry, and there's a couple sandwiches and a hot cup of coffee. It's literally a drop-in center. That's it. No questions asked. If you need help, the person is standing there. You know what they'll do. And they won't interact with you other than say good morning or something unless you need it. For a large part, these people are either volunteers or they're making nothing more than minimum wage through donations or support that these agencies get. But what blew me away, and I, and I, want, I, I can't emphasize this enough, is the absolute number of these organizations that are living just below the vast majority visibility line. And when you think about a visibility line of all those organizations that you know are out there and working in society, well, then when you dip below that line, the myriad of connected network of social support organizations, they themselves that live hand to mouth to help the people living hand to mouth, it is just awe-inspiring and it struck me and and it will it, it will never leave me to know that there are people with such big hearts that are doing this type of work in vulnerable populations so the second part that we need to talk about is those who are well hidden and i know it's always a difficult subject and but we need to talk about it more is i know you have a friend or yourself that person looking in the mirror who has a struggle with mental illness and through my 20 plus years in the army, uh, I've come across a great number of friends and some friends who have lost their struggle with mental illness. It lives in quite a number of people, especially throughout this pandemic. And it is the most under-researched portion of vulnerable populations when it comes to preparedness. Uh, we have a whole slew of individuals who seem to be normal, productive members of our society. And, and, I, and I was explained to this once by somebody, uh, a fairly close friend of mine with post-traumatic stress disorder. And he basically said, hey, listen, my life looks pretty damn cool. 
you know, I, I'm achieving this, I'm achieving that, I'm doing really well. What you see is the duck on top of the water. What you don't see is underneath every day, my feet are going 100 miles an hour. I'm stressed to the nines. I'm sweating. I don't sleep. I'm popping every pill you can imagine. I'm drinking seven cups of coffee. But the image I portray is one of a reasonably competent individual. These are your well-hidden, vulnerable folks. People that we largely will dismiss as they got it squared away. They got it figured out. They're doing something. But they're struggling and they're struggling mightily. And I know, especially for men, the topic of mental health is something we never talk enough about. And we as a society are getting better at it. But it forms my core understanding based on the limited research that I have done, that those living with mental health are the largest unresearched portion of the vulnerable populations. Because there are people who can assist with mental health, but mental health is such a long continuum of struggle. You need access to good resources and you need significant time to work your way through a mental health issue. When you need a sangy because you're hungry, somebody can give you a sangy and that can carry you on for another, you know, day or so. But the point being is that with mental health, it's so much more difficult. So what does this all mean for the world of preparedness? In today's world, and it's part of my examination that I'm doing for my research, is that we are, as a society, are moving more and more digitally. So more and more of what we do is moving to an online platform, to an app-based platform. And the genre and the study of emergency management is doing just that. So if you're in my sandbox of preparedness, you look at the levels of preparedness messaging that is starting to move almost akin, complete to social media. There are a lot of um, cities and municipalities that I have spoken to and provincial officials who no longer hand out uh, paper emergency preparedness information. You know, we have that emergency preparedness week in May. There used to be all kinds of pamphlets that would come out. Not everybody does that anymore. Now, some still do, but the majority of effort is moving to look at our awesome, really cool, well-laid-out emergency management plan. Just go to our website, link it, find it. Some are really exceptionally difficult to find. That's a different argument altogether. But the preponderance of our efforts and preparedness are moving on to the digital spectrum because society is going there. The problem with vulnerable people and the vulnerable population is government initiatives like this, we're, we're leaving a section of society behind. We're unintentionally or intentionally abandoning a section of the population by moving to the digital space. And I'll give you a prime example. One of the uh, municipalities that I spoke to in my research, um, she simply said, listen, when something bad happens around here and we need to get a message out, the first people they call is the radio station. Because where they are in rural Ontario, over 60% of the population is 65 and older. These people get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and the first thing that they do is they turn on their, their talk radio in the background. And it's on all day. Now they probably have Facebook to talk to their grandchildren. But they're only periodically, maybe not even every day, on their social devices but their talk radio is on in the background. So she understands that if she wants to reach her population in a rapid sense, 
She does not go to social media. She goes to talk radio. Now, that's an exception. And I highlight that because it's an exception. The majority of people that I spoke to for my research and my ongoing work on my business side is that people who run emergency management plans are moving more to notification on social media and trying to hook audiences that way. So you look at demographics, both the vulnerable population, which would be the elderly population for a whole slew of issues, and then the socioeconomic challenge people that they, yeah, they may have a smartphone. Sure, they all got smartphones, but that smartphone is not a device that they are leveraging to access emergency preparedness information. Remember, when you're on digital media for emergency preparedness, you have to get people into your feed. They're not automatically going to go look for you unless they're interested in emergency preparedness. And again, we go back to what I talked about, the struggle for people with the majority of people in socioeconomic obvious vulnerabilities is they're working on a day-to-day, -day, I got to get through the day. And one of the checkboxes for their day is not emergency preparedness updates. And so you have a vulnerable portion of the population almost at the lower and the upper end of the age bracket and across all age brackets in the socioeconomic spectrum, you have this vulnerable group of people that are not being addressed through current emergency preparedness communications. Now, if we extend that to those who are struggling with mental health, you see the barrier of how do I get through my day? Now, some people are worried about lunch and feeding their children. And some people are worried about the anxiety level that prevents them from opening the front door to go get that pasta to feed their children. And I'm over here talking about evacuation planning. And this was an exchange I had on Twitter with a uh, exceptionally smart professor in BC. And she did bring up some great points. Now, the point I was making on Twitter was a little different from the points that she was making. But she was emphasizing that you know, not everybody has the resources to make these wonderful evacuation plans. I was leveraging into social capital space. The point was that she was absolutely correct in that when we bring out these emergency preparedness communications and emergency preparedness plans and we lay them scoped across uh, all of the people, we have shortfalls. And let me explain. When you're sitting at what used to be Public Safety Canada, and I know all of you emergency preparedness nerds in Canada are excited about this, or should be excited about this, that uh, JT and the Sunshine Band just brought in a new ministry of emergency preparedness and separated it from Public Safety Canada. Now, it's still under the old minister of Bill Blair, and he does double-hatted as the president of the cabinet. So... I'm not sure what this means. The potential is exponential. I'm not sure what they're going to do with it. But if this new Ministry of Emergency Preparedness kicks out a national message to 35 million Canadians, it is by definition going to be necessarily vague and non-specific. Because if that message is specific, you are going to miss a whole slew of the population that it doesn't apply to. And if you move down to the province of Ontario, roughly 14 million people, same issue. You come down to the municipality of the city of Ottawa, where I live, roughly 1 million people who are in the NCR. The message is still vague, but you can be a little bit more 
specific. And so when you look at those putting out this emergency preparedness messaging and you're vague to that, how do we reach this vulnerable population? You know, that professor in BC was 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 absolutely correct that the standard messaging doesn't work and what we're saying to them may come across as a bit of arrogance, shaming, and it in an unintentionally can. So we have to be very specific about this messaging. So how do you do that? How do you have multiple streams of messaging to get to all of these different stratas of the population? And especially what we're talking about today is the vulnerable population, both those with mental health, which is is a subject near and dear to my heart that is never researched enough, and those with socioeconomic or physical limitations that are obvious to society. So when we look at those two groups of people, how do we get that preparedness vague messaging? So I walked into my research with a, a hypothesis and, and every good researcher does and they express that hypothesis because it's always a mention of not only what you think you'll find, which should be grounded in both the literature and your personal experience, but it's also your expression of your bias because every researcher is biased to some degree when we look at an issue. There's no way to avoid that. And so what my research has shown, what I've found so far is, is based on a network analysis. So you need emergency managers who are sending out preparedness information within their scale. So whether it's local, provincial, et cetera, if you're sending out a vague message and you're just sending out to the gross population, I would call you an abject failure. And, and this is aggressive and in your face, and I don't care because this is what the research is showing that nobody or a less than majority of people are listening 30 years later. So if you're continually taking a message and sending it out into the ether and patting yourself on the back that you're doing emergency preparedness properly, I would argue you're a failure. Now, you may not like that. And if I got you angry right now, then I probably hit the right nail. So what my research is showing is your avenue to success is accessing these networks that exist. Like I tell you, I'm a fairly smart individual and a fairly seasoned individual, or I thought I was going into this. But when I started to research and I followed the lines and I got below that visible line of society that everybody understands as to what the, the congruent parts or the constituent parts of your society are, and I got below that visibility line, and I came across this, this incredible network of wonderful individuals who are working themselves hand to mouth and struggling to provide services to people that are struggling. That network exists. These people are connected. People on the lower socioeconomic spectrum are connected. People with mental health illness are connected. People, homeless people are connected. They're just not connected to you and your network, and your message. And that's the difficulty. When you understand the networks that exist within society, and this is my study of social capital, and I won't go into the details of all of that, but the point being is that everybody in society is connected to someone else in society through either friendships, relationships, or relationships built upon services. Either they're giving or receiving those services. So as an emergency preparedness specialist, expert, communications guru, whatever you call yourself, you need to access the existing networks of people who interact with the vulnerable populations to get the message. Now, you don't have to create this well-crafted message specifically for those in wheelchairs, in emergency evacuations, in buildings because the specialty for that exists. What you need to do 
is access the network and say, hey, my name is Joe Blow. I am an emergency preparedness community emergency management coordinator for the city of whatever. It's my responsibility to get out emergency preparedness information. And I would like you to help me get this information to the populations you serve. What do they need to hear? How do I get this message to them? And what should the message look like? Don't come in with what I see far too often in the emergency management field is this level of arrogance of I've got the education, I've got the position, I've written the plan, I know what's best. If people would just listen to me, everything would be great. That is such a level of arrogance. Unfortunately, it is too much in emergency management. When we understand, and great research, I keep hitting this in the United States of America, that as an emergency management professional, when you view yourself as a consultant to the population, you are far higher uptake of your message and, and far better outcomes. The point being is, is that the network is there for you to access to help the vulnerable population. You need to access the network that does that not try to build your own network. Do not try to lay out your nodes and your delivery points and all the other steps of communication pathway creation. These pathways exist because we know Einstein's definition of insanity of doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Well, that's emergency preparedness communication in Canada right now. Now, I'm sure whatever country you're listening in, you can nod your head and say, yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. We're sending the same message, you know, get your kit, have a plan, you know, be informed. All those cute little beautiful th sayings, which, by the way, I think are junk, but we'll get to that in a different level. And nobody's listening. And they're either lis not listening because they're not paying any attention to you and you're speaking to the ether, or you're not convincing enough and you're not presenting a convincing enough program to persuade the individual that you're a value to listen to and that what you're saying matters. So unless you want to continue the definition of an insanity and emergency preparedness communications, we have to stop doing the same thing. But that doesn't mean we need to reinvent the wheel. That means we need to understand the communities which we serve, which is the balance of my research. And again, when you go into these four or five year research journeys, you expect to find something and, and the beauty of it is is when you interview human beings and you get into the parts of society that are not well visibly understood it's 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 such an amazing eye-opening experience when you see the incredible quality of human beings and 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 the level of human suffering in some cases that exists just below the visible line so i implore you that two points one if you work in the emergency preparedness space, get out of your box and access the resources, the networks that already connect to the vulnerable members of our society and use those pathways to execute your function. And number two, if you're an oxygen consuming human being within society, understand that the vulnerable population that exists in society is not a outcasts. They're not bad. They're not evil. They're, they're human beings. They were somebody's son or daughter at one point, and they may still be. So you may not be involved in the emergency preparedness world. You may not be involved, but do something to help people in society who are struggling.
help them out, do something, do whatever's in your power. And what I do is, you know, I, I go to the bank machine. I withdraw uh, 25s. That's 100 bucks. 100 bucks is nothing to those who have an income. I put those in my pocket. I carry them in my wallet. When I pass a homeless individual, I give them five bucks and I just walk away. They say thank you. I say you're welcome. I hope you have a great day. That's just a little something. I, it doesn't matter what they do with it. And it, it is far too judgmental for me to do. So I do that. So what I really want you to take away from today is the fact that there are vulnerable populations around us. That emergency preparedness uh, in the current spectrum is leaving them behind. And that is not something that we should do. And as well, there are some great solutions out there. But I wanted to make sure that, that I took some time to highlight the fact that these vulnerable people exist around us, that there are great people doing work to help them, that those people need support. And I think this issue just needs to be spent more and more time. And I never entered this research journey to talk about vulnerable people, not at all. I collided with them as I dug deep into the society that surrounds me. And now that I understand it, it is becoming more and more of my mission to address. So thanks for joining us this week on Inside My Canoe Head. Upcoming issues are going to continue along the preparedness stream. We are going to continue to have some more blunt public policy. I got a lot of feedback positive and a lot of negative on that, which means I did it correctly. That series is just intertwined. That's why I put it in the title, Bunt Public Policy. The next one I'm doing is on taxation. If taxation drives you nuts or you don't understand why Jeff Bezos pays money, then listen in. If you're in a preparedness genre, just don't download that episode and move on. It's perfectly okay. It's just a voice that I think needs to happen in the world. And instead of jumping off and creating a second or a third podcast to talk about it, we're just going to interspace those, you know, once every three, four weeks, something like that. There's a couple of other streams that I'm going to start as well, but I will put those in the title of the episode. So I'm not trying to hook you into something. It starts with preparedness if we're talking about preparedness. It starts with blunt public policy if we're talking about public policy. And if I start talking about other issues, it'll be clearly in the title that that's what we're doing. So ladies and gentlemen, please keep the feedback coming. I found it incredible when, when uh, one of the podcast apps reached out to me and told me I had broken the top 30 in Kenya. Now, you may think, what what's the big deal? It's Kenya. Well, there's over 10,000 podcasts in the education field. It's one country. But the point being is that whatever I'm doing here, people are listening. And so I want you to keep the feedback coming in because the majority of issues that I talk about on this podcast are issues that come from listeners. Now, I get the feedback through the reviews I read through my email at jeff at preparednesslabs.ca. You can hit me up on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Inside Canoe Head because Inside My Canoe Head wouldn't fit. On my Instagram at Inside My Canoe Head. Like, reach out and, and give me your feedback, positive or negative. I'm a stoic. You can't hurt my feelings. That's a choice I make. Um, you can't offend me. That's a choice I make. So, but I want to hear your feedback because I think this is an exceptionally important space, especially in today's world with both climate change, pandemic, economic collapse that people are talking about and preparedness in general. So thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this episode of Inside My Canoe Head. Please get a jab, wear a mask where you're asked to, and have yourself an awesome time. We'll talk to you in seven days or less.